May I greet this wonderful congregation this morning in the blessed name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I'd like to send greetings to all Israelites scattered across the hinterlands of our country and beyond the Atlantic, the Pacific, wherever Israelites may be tucked away in the crevices, canyons, plains, urban areas of our world, particularly here across America. We're going to open our Bibles as a point of beginning today to the book of Colossians. Paul's epistle to the Colossians chapter number one. Let us pray. God our Father and the wonderful name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for the joy, the pleasure, and the exceedingly great uh, joy and euphoric feeling that we have to open our Bibles and to grow in the knowledge and revelation of Christ our Savior. Father, we live in a very, very difficult season of history, and we pray for your grace, your unmerited love, grace, <clears throat> and favor to be showered upon your Israelite people all across America and the Western world. <clears throat> we praise thee and thank thee in so many ways for your unending love and grace in this rather difficult season of history. Now as we turn, Father in heaven, to this Bible study today, we humbly ask in the most blessed name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you would send your Holy Spirit and guide us all in the love of Christ and the extended fellowship of Israelites across this country and the world. Open our eyes now to the understanding of your word. And for all these blessings, we will now and forever remember that all praise and glory and honor accrues to the wonderful name of Christ our Savior, in whose holy name we pray, amen. Well, we may be in lesson number six today on the American Miracle a series that we've been undertaking. And I believe this is lesson number six, if I'm incorrect on that. I do stand uh, corrected, and I apologize if I'm incorrect on that. Now, on this, in this lesson, we're going to continue and pick up where we left off last time, but I'm going to begin with Colossians chapter number 1, verses 13 and 14. We live in a season of history that compels us to hold tenaciously, tenaciously to the Word of God. So let me read from Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 13, this precious Word of God. St. Paul's addressing this epistle to the church at Colossae, and he says this in chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. Speaking of Christ, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. When St. Paul wrote these words to the Colossians, they were Greek-speaking Israelites of the dispersion, and they were coming into the knowledge of the gospel of the kingdom. St. Paul was writing to these Colossians in a time and season of history when the imperial Roman government reigned triumphantly and supremely 
over all the Greek-speaking Israelites, all of the Hebrew-speaking Israelites, and those that were Latin-speaking that were more or less tied to the uh, Roman uh, Empire in its former days. At this point in history, Rome ruled uh, as the supreme power then in existence. Now, the Christians in the first century faced monumental uh, difficulty under that imperial Roman government, and they lived in the shadow of one tyrant after the other that was appearing in Roman history. When Paul wrote to the Colossians, he reminded them that when they became a Christian, that marvelously, spiritually, they were transformed from the kingdom of this world, the darkness of this world, into the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, you'll remember in the Gospel of John, in chapter 18, verse 36, Jesus in conversation toward the very uh, last hours of his life, had said, My kingdom is not of this world. John 18, 36. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered unto the Judeans. The Judeans, of course, primarily those who were vehemently opposed to the idea that Christ was the Messiah. My kingdom is not of this world, and my servants would fight if this were my kingdom. But he emphasized that his kingdom was not of this world. When someone became a Christian in the first century, it was very, very important for them to understand that they, by virtue of their belief in Jesus Christ, were made citizens of his kingdom. They held citizenship in the kingdom of God, even though they lived in a fallen world under the imperial authority of the Roman Empire. It is true that they lived in the reality of that uh, tyrannical Roman government, but nonetheless, they knew that when they belonged to Christ, they were translated into his kingdom, and they had been translated in their uh, transformation from this world into the kingdom of Christ. They had been delivered from the power of Satan, from his kingdom, because there's, only re there's really only two kingdoms uh, in existence. It's the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ versus the kingdom of Satan. Two kingdoms. And those two kingdoms have been in power since the fall. We go back to the beginning of sin's entry into the world. Those two kingdoms have been the viable structure of the authority of this world. Now, we may not understand all that much about either the kingdom or of, of Satan or of God, but we know that sin's entry into the world uh, placed Satan upon the throne of a counterfeit, very, very spiritually deficient, very anti-Christ kingdom that was seeking to take dominion of the real estate of this earth and the souls of man. So when St. Paul delivered his epistle to the, Coloss to the uh, Christians in Colossae, he was triumphantly, spiritually, uh, very, very uh, upbeat in this epistle because he was reminding them that though they lived in the 
shadow of this tyrannical Roman Empire, that they were citizens of the kingdom of God. So we understand today that as believers, there, there is the presence of two very invisible kingdoms. And those who are outside of the kingdom of God are acting upon and they are being driven by all the forces of evil, the fallen angels, the demons, the evil spirits that we cannot see visibly. They are that invisible world. St. Paul had reference to that world when he spoke to the Ephesians, wrote his letter to the Ephesian church in chapter number 6, and he told them in Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against pow principalities, powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. St. Paul continued to admonish these Ephesian Christians, Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, and this is so true for you and I today, that you may be able to stand against the in the day of evil, and having done all to stand, stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, moral purity, breastplate of righteousness, having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Everyone who is numbered in the kingdom of God, who has been translated into that kingdom, lives... If they are true Christians, they are seeking to be uh, armed with the full armor set forth in, in Ephesians chapter number 6, uh, verses 10 through 18. All the pieces of that armor, when they are in place, provide you with the spiritual strength to fight against the invisible kingdom, which you cannot see, but is very, very real. The invisible kingdom of Satan is as real as the kingdom you live in, because it is the power structure that guides those in authority that are outside the kingdom of God. And I would have to conclude today that about 90 5% or even more of those in power in our time of history in our country are being ruled from the kingdom of Satan. So you only have a very, very small number that are seeking to live and to advance the truth that we know is central to the kingdom of God on this earth. So we enter into this lesson today to remind everyone that we know we live in a season of history when things are not going well in America. As a matter of fact, it is true, and all of you know this, when we examine the foundations upon which this country, this American Manasseh nation was founded, we clearly understand and can see and discern that that foundation has been pulled out from underneath 
those who are living in, in this country today, and we're living in a very disordered, chaotic time of history when the kingdom, that invisible kingdom of Satan, has gained a, a stronghold in this land. So the principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this world, the spiritual wickedness in high places, the invisible but very real presence of the kingdom of Satan is what we see operating in America today. And that, and that kingdom has made relentless efforts to destroy this country and, of course, remove the beautiful constitutional republic that our founding fathers worked so hard to gain us, to give to us uh, and bequeath to us. So I'd like to remind everyone today to remember that the ultimate consummation of history is not the restoration revival of that wonderful American Republic that was founded for us beginning with the arrival of the pilgrims, followed by the Puritans, followed by the successive waves of Anglo-Saxon, Germanic, Scandinavian people that plied their way across 3,000 miles of the Atlantic to plant this nation in time and history. It's difficult for anyone to understand and fathom the idea that we're living in a season in history when the con consummation of history is moving us dramatically in rapid form toward the kingdom of God. When the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So Isaiah joined in a chorus of prophetic announcements that run like a scarlet thread through the entire prophetic section of the Bible that the all-consuming end terminus toward which history is moving us is toward the kingdom. And you'll remember that when Gabriel came to visit the Virgin Mary, as recorded in the Gospel of Luke, beginning in chapter number 1, verse 30, the angels said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. That throne is the very throne that Isaiah prophesied of, that we just read from his prophecy in chapter 9. It is the very throne of David that is repetitiously confirmed in the Old Testament canon and continues right on into the New Testament canon. He shall be great. He shall, call the, he shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. That's a coming world order that will be under the full authority of Jesus Christ upon the throne of David. 
Remember the Lord's Prayer. We are taught to pray, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in this earth as it is in heaven. We think of the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God is heaven coming down to earth, and that will occur, of course, at the appearing of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, to assume the reins of government. And when that great day comes, you will hear Revelation eleven fifteen uttered. Now, I know this is not that easy on people who are locked up in preterism, but let me tell you that Revelation eleven fifteen is a utterance that no one has heard yet in history. So what are those beautiful words in Revelation eleven fifteen? And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Christ, our Lord and His Christ, and He shall reign forever. Now sadly, those who have rolled up the sidewalks, locked the doors to the book of Revelation, they need to go back and reread what the preface of that book tells them. That the book of Revelation covers events that had already passed, yes. That's a historical fact that portions of the book of Revelation had indeed occurred. And then it tells us that it would discuss things that presently are, the things that are present, now occurring. We have a very graphic history of the seven churches of Asia and other portions that we could, uh, uh, other segments of history that we might also include there. But let me tell you, folks, for those of you who have closed the book of Revelation as a finished prophetic word, I have news for you. That train is yet to leave the station. So you need to hold on and continue to pray and read the book of Revelation. Because you have not witnessed the fall of Mystery Babylon the Great as so described in Revelation 18 and all the events that occur thereafter in chapter 19. Now, I challenge anyone, anywhere, at any point on earth to tell me when Revelation 1911 Thereafter, the verses that follow have already been history. It is anyone who believes that those verses are historical facts that have already occurred, you only discourage people that try to make sense out of the Bible. And you, you lead them in a way that becomes very discouraging because... Anyone who believes that God has left his covenant family of people, the Israelite family of redeemed people, without a prophetic guide to lead them to the consummation of history, they are kidding themselves. We just need to become good Bible students and continue to read the Word of God until the King arrives. That's what we need to do. So when we look at American history today, in this final examination probably of um, the, miracle, the miracle of America, we need to remember that everyone who's ever lived in the United States of America has lived in the most exceptional nation under heaven. All of those who are listening today who have traveled to the far corners of this fallen world and have 
examine the squalor and the poverty and the disarray and the horrific living standards where most of the inhabitants of the third world have been for untold centuries, you would then begin to appreciate the glorious beauty that God has showered upon this nation. We are the most exceptional nation that God has placed upon this earth because we are the great nation that is mentioned in Genesis 35, 11, that nation and company of nations that was to come out of the loins of Jacob. America is that nation, that, that single, singular nation, and the British Commonwealth is that multitude of nations. And you can confirm that, of course, in Genesis chapter 48, verse 16, and also in verse number 19. So we're going to begin today, and we're going to pick up where we left off. We will begin with the outline that I passed out. So some of you will have that outline. Others may have accidentally misplaced it, so I'm very sorry about that. But I gave you an outline. This outline we've been following now. And we're going to pick up right where we left off last time. We had left off talking about the people, the, the great white Christian Israelite minds that had gathered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, in Constitutional Hall, as we call it today, to re-evaluate, rewrite the Articles of Confederation. They knew that the articles were deficient. They had discovered that through quite a number of years. So by 1787, they desperately needed to revisit the Articles of Confederation. And it wasn't very long thereafter that they began to realize that they were going to be drafting an entirely new uh, model of government. Now, I need to remind this congregation today that the men who gathered there in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, were a very, very well-ordered, well-educated body of men. They had studied very, very deep, in very, very uh, serious ways all the key documents of Israelite history. That might have included all the freedom, doc, uh, all the freedom documents going back to the Magna Carta, uh, going all the way back to uh, uh, the um, laws that had been transacted in England and in other European Israelite nations. So they looked studiously at the historical record of time and man's search to build a model government. In their efforts to build that government, they wanted a model of government that would be uh, able to secure the rights, the God-given rights that they so cherished after passing through the tyrannical years of living under King George II, King George III, and prior to that, generations that had lived under the tyrannical rule of the various authorities in Europe. So these people wanted a model of government that would ensure a freedom, loving people and nation for uh, indefinite uh, future to come. And they finally resulted to give careful study to the model of government that God gave our Israelite forebears when they left Egypt in the great exodus, arrived in the desert, 
and therewith complete freedom on their hands, really didn't know what to do with it. They, mer they emerged from slavery into freedom, but how do you remain a free people? How do you organize and order yourselves? Now, if you've studied your Bible, you know that those Israelites wandered around in that desert from pillar to post for a long, long time in a very disordered, confused way. When they arrived at the foot of Mount Sinai, it was time for the living God to give them a government from heaven. Now, many people would deny that, and I do not want to retrace the words that we read last in our last lesson from Exodus 19, particularly verses 3 through 8. But on that occasion, when they were celebrating the, the Feast of Pentecost, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob thundered from heaven to reveal His model of government for them. And I want to just remind you that when Moses had gone up into the mountain, that God spoke to him and gave him the foundational plan for the model of government that God chose for Israel. Now, this would require a lot of time, an enormous detail to go into all of this, so we're just hitting highlights. I want to remind you that when the elders of Israel received the words from Moses, we have representative elders that received that message. They looked at that message and they communicated the words of Jehovah Elohim, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and they communicated those words to the children of Israel. And you look at your Bible in Exodus 19 and verse number 8. And when those people received the words, they looked at the words that had been transmitted to Moses. Then passed on to the representatives, the elders of Israel, and they said collectively with all together one voice, all that the Lord Jehovah has said we will do. And Moses took the words of the people back into Jehovah in heaven. So this was consent of the governed. Our God gave Israel a choice of self-government, self-rule. I want everyone to remember that because it is so important for us all to remember that when our founding fathers designed the United States Constitution, they followed essentially the same model. When the ratification of the Constitution came along, you will remember, all of you, I'm sure, most of you, will remember that it was established by the Founding Fathers who assembled there they wanted to remind everyone that would follow after them that this constitution of self-government, self-government, something brand new that had not been tried in Europe. In Europe, all the Israelites knew only tyrannical government. The idea of individual freedom of a Bill of Rights that gave men rights descending from God Almighty and not a government tyrant. 
That was a brand new idea. We're not looking at kings and, and tyrants and czars and, and, and all kinds of, of tyrants that had been historically the, the, the kind of government that the Israelites lived in when they were in Europe. But now we're talking about an entirely different kind of governmental authority. So this is very important that we understand this. So I want, uh, we, we really need to bear down on this. So I want everyone to remember how important it is. Here's what John Adams won. Now John Adams was not at the Constitutional Convention. He was serving as our, uh, as our ambassador in England at the time of the writing of the Constitution. But when John Adams studied the Constitution, this is what he said. And I quote, Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. So John Adams is saying emphatically, this model of government that we give you was designed for a people that are moral. They are spiritually attuned to their God and they know how to exercise, preserve and keep self-government. Everyone that's listening to this lesson knows today that when you become a Christian, you begin to practice self-government. You begin to be responsible for the words, the deeds, and the actions that are part of who you are. Because you know that you're answering to a sovereign God for the life He has given you in this time of history. So the Israelites back in the writing of the United States Constitution, those white men, white Christian men, were designing a model of government that they truly prayed would be pleasing to God. A government that would ensure future generations the liberty to live as free men and women under Jesus Christ in the new world. They did not design a government today that would, people going back to study the Constitution, would not be happy with a lot of the parts of the Constitution. As far as I am personally concerned, I have spent most of my adult life defending the United States Constitution, and I have labored to try as best I could to persuade all those who are so very much against the Founding Fathers and the Constitution that all they can see are the flaws they perceive in the writing of the Constitution. So I remind you that when God gave Israel His perfect model of government, and I don't think anyone here today, <clears throat> anyone anywhere that has a mind to love God and Scripture, would argue with the fact that the model of government that Israel received at Mount Sinai Exodus 19 through chapter 24 was a government designed by a sovereign God to guide His people in self-government. But that required responsibility from them. God gave them a perfect government and then He said, it's up to you to keep it. Our Founding Fathers followed that same pattern. To the best of their ability, they carved out a constitution that they believed would give self-government 
for the remainder of the time that would be allotted to the survival of this nation. So I want, I just want to remind everyone of that very, very significant fact. And then I want to remind everyone, I think it's really important that I would remind the congregation today of the words that are found in the words of Benjamin Franklin at the ratification of the Constitution. Ben Franklin is the most quoted member of our founding fathers. He had a newspaper and he wrote more, said more than any other member of the founding uh, fathers of the nation. So I'm going to read what Benjamin Franklin said, and this was widely dispersed across America at that time. In fact, uh, ben Franklin's words helped many uh, sign on to the Constitution that were really opposed to it. He persuaded a lot of the colonial uh, people who, who were very reluctant. They, those people had just fought a war to, to rid themselves of tyrants. They had just been, uh, you know, they had suffered immeasurably for six bloody years. And you can, you can empathize with them. They didn't want to give and surrender their freedom to any government that they didn't believe they could trust. So I, I sympathize with those people. Uh, you know, I sympathize with Patrick Henry, Henry, who said, I smell a rat. I will have nothing to do with this constitution you're going to design because you're going to create a central government that will eventually swallow up the states. Now, of course, he gave a sort of a prophetic, prophetic overview of the future. But this is exactly what happened to ancient Israel. How long did the perfect model of government given to them by a sovereign God last them? How many generations after Moses and all that generation had passed on, how long did that model last them? Have you read the book, the rest of the books of of, of Moses. The book of Exodus records that model government. Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. By the time we get into the book of Judges, Israel is living in pure chaos. They have utterly lost that model of government. Now, that is what a lot of people need to go back and look at. God gave them a perfect model of government, but they couldn't keep it. Why? Because they could not retain their moral, spiritual stature and standing with a sovereign God. They left off serving God, keeping His laws and His commandments and begin to fabricate their own statutory laws. We're, we have followed that same pattern in the post-historical uh, era of American history and the writing of our Constitution. So that is something that we need to give careful consideration to. So let me read now what Ben Franklin said when he signed this document as one of the members that ratified it uh, there, he was one of 39 founding fathers from the original 55 that assembled. And of the 70 who were eligible to come, remember only 55 arrived, and only 39 remained to sign it. Three of the most well-known founding fathers refused to sign the original Constitution, because it did not contain yet a Bill of Rights. So George Mason, the author of the Declaration of Rights in Virginia, a wonderful founding father, was joined by Edmund Randolph, another 
really high-profile founding father, and another one, Elbridge Gary, those three men said, look, we love the Constitution that, you, that has been drafted. They were there. They helped draft it. But we don't have the Bill of Rights. And because of that, we simply cannot sign and ratify. Now, there was a founding father there. He is called the, the father of the United States Constitution, James Madison. James Madison also wanted a Bill of Rights. So he worked insidiously, individually, talking to the, to the individual members of the Founding Fathers. And he was given assurance, a gentleman's agreement, that a Bill of Rights would, have, would follow as soon as absolutely it could be uh, passed into uh, and ratified and added to the Constitution. James Madison was the one member of the Founding Fathers who every day kept a detailed written account of all the proceedings. Every day, week in, week, week out, James Madison was recording what was happening. Later, his notes became the most coveted body of written material because it was the only, he was the only member of the, of, the, of the Founding Fathers who took the time and the discipline to write everything down. And so his, his writings, while they have now be, uh, I mean, they're, they're basically unknown because most people have never looked at them, but James Madison is not He's not called the father of the Constitution without good reason. Not only did he keep an account, but James Madison was there every day pushing some of the, some of the most significant principles incorporated into the United States Constitution. And he kept his promise. When George Washington was inaugurated president, James Madison was relentless in his efforts to get the Bill of Rights ratified and added to the Constitution. And he worked at that, uh, he worked at that insidiously for a very, very long time. And if you'll turn to your worksheet, we're going to find out a little bit more about all of this. If you'll turn with me to our worksheet, at that work, at that assembly, and I'm on number three of the back part of our of our worksheet number three question is asked what model of government found in the bible was examined by the founding fathers the answer is a constitutional theocracy our god a sovereign god jehovah elohim of israel gave his people a model of government and with the Constitution that is recorded in Exodus chapters 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, and 24. That is the constitutional theocracy. Our founding fathers did not give us a constitutional theocracy. They based their constitutional writing and formation upon everything they could glean from history and that which they thought would be plausible to maintain a self-governing, independent American republic, not a democracy. The word democracy does not appear in the Constitution. If you look at that word democracy closely, it has a root word in it called demon, demon democ, de, democracy. And uh, you well know that uh, the word democrat ends in rat. You also know that the word republican ends in I can. The word Republican is a derivative of that word Republic, and that's 
that independent republic, a constitutional republic, is what our founding fathers gave us. Government by representation, not a democracy where everybody has equal standing and an equal vote. Constitution was designed to preserve a white, homogenous nation of freedom-loving people indefinitely. Every founding father was a Caucasian. Every one of them that I know and have been able to find out was either a committed Christian or living the life of one. Their lifestyle was very much uh, very, very moral and upstanding. And I'm not saying that they were flawless by any means. They were human, fallen uh, men. So they, they gave, Israel received a constitutional theocracy. And the, there, there, were, there were so many problems that had to be worked out in the formation of, a, of, of the model that we now have as the United States of America. One of the most difficult plans was how to balance the sovereignty of the states against any kind of a central government. And the Virginia plan, which was essentially authored by James Madison and Edmund Randolph from Virginia with assistance from many others, they came up with the Virginia plan, which called for the separation of powers. Remember, we used Isaiah 33, 22 in a previous lesson. Isaiah 33, 22, the Lord Jehovah, He is our judge. The Lord Jehovah, He is our lawgiver, legislative. The Lord Jehovah, He is our king, the executive branch. So they divided the central government into three divisions. Interesting. Three is the number of completeness. We as Christians, if you're a Bible-believing Christian, you know that God is triune. He is Father, Son, and Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit. Our Constitution is patterned after the image and likeness of God. Now, I know a lot of people will have a fit and fall in it with what I just said, but that's your problem. You just need to go back and study your Bible and the history of your own country. So may I say this, beloved, that in giving us the Virginia plan that called for the separation of powers, we need to ask ourselves, why did they divide the power of this centralized government into three branches? They did that because they knew when sin entered into the world, it left all men morally flawed. The Bible tells us, Wherefore, as by one man Adam, sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. Romans 5, 12. Those people read their Bibles. They knew that everyone was flawed. And they knew that they needed to separate power and not concentrate it. If we had managed to retain the original Constitution as written, America would be a free independent republic of only white people today. It is not the fault of George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, George Mason, Patrick Henry, or any of the other founding fathers that this country has been surrendered and lost to demented, unchristian, immoral minds that are in the majority today. That is not their problem. 
any more than we can blame a sovereign God for the mess that Israel made out of the government that God gave ancient Israel. So with those thoughts in mind, beloved, let me, let me just uh, quickly summarize some things here. The great compromise called the Virginia Plan, it called for the separation of powers. The two famous Americans that did not attend and help design this government and they were two of the most brilliant men, but they were in constant uh, communication, even in very slow progress at that time. That was Thomas Jefferson, who served as our ambassador to France, John Adams, who was in England. Neither of those great minds were there every day. But nonetheless, there were others that were equally capable of framing this Constitution. Now, one of the events that happened in the Constitution is called the Great Compromise. And one of the, one of the Gordian knots that had to be untied was how to build a Congress that would be most carefully responsible for letting all Americans have a voice in their government. So they came up with what is called the Great Compromise, that the United States Congress would be made up of the House of Representatives based upon representation of the population of a given colony or state at that time. And the United States Senate would have two members, no matter how large or how small they were. Now, if you had been living in tiny little Delaware at that time, in contrast to huge Pennsylvania, you would have been very happy with that, what's called the, uh, the Great Compromise that was engineered by Roger Sherman. He, his plan called for representation in the House, elected by people, but the Senate would have two members elected by the state electors. So the people would not vote directly for U.S. Senators. It was a more, uh, certainly a, a, a stronger republic than what we have today because we amended that principle out of the United States Constitution. That, that has been altered and changed. So did the Founding Fathers want, did they, did they anticipate us reworking the Constitution through the amendment process and completely scrambling their work? Not on your life. Ben Franklin told the wife of the mayor of Philadelphia when, he, when she asked him, what, uh, what kind of government have you given us, Dr. Franklin? And he said, Madam, we've given you a republic if you can keep it. And we, no less than ancient Israel, proved that we couldn't keep that republic. We need to look at the original Constitution as written, not as it has been amended and changed and radically altered by those who are not moral and those who are not Christian and those who did not have a good understanding of the history of America. And we've had a lot of those. Now, let me read to you the preamble of the United States Constitution. Listen to this preamble. We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. To ourselves and our posterity. They did not write the Constitution for a multicultural, racially diverse nation of multiple races, religions, ideals, 
languages and so forth. The America of today is no longer the America of our founding fathers, and you all know that. So they wrote it for themselves and their posterity. America in 1779, when the Constitution was ratified, was a pristine, white, Protestant, Christian nation. The Founding Fathers intended for it to remain that way. They gave voting privileges to all white men, the head of a family, so every family cast one vote. They did not grant voting rights to any other species. No rights, no voting rights were granted to native aborigine American Indians. No voting rights were accorded to any of the non-white citizens, correction, non-white people that lived on the soil of the United States. Any foreigner that happened to be make access to the country was not allowed to vote. So you can see, if we had retained the original Constitution, America would have remained a freedom-loving, independent republic of white people. But we lost our spiritual and moral way, and because of that, we are now in the process of watching our country come under tyrannical, totalitarian, Marxist, communist rule. And that's where we are today. Now, beloved, I said that I was going to read into the record, and I, I need to bring this to a close. Ben Franklin said on the day of ratification, the final session, when he was going to ratify the Constitution. This is what he said. I confess that, that I do not utterly approve of this Constitution at present. He wanted a Bill of Rights also. But sir, I am not sure I shall never approve it. For having lived long, I have experienced many instances of being obliged by better information or fuller consideration to change opinions even on important subjects once I thought right, but found to be otherwise. It is therefore that the older I grow, the more apt I am to doubt my own judgment and to pay more respect in possession of others. In these sentiments, sir, I agree to this Constitution. With all of its faults, if there are such, because I think a general government necessary for us, and there is no form of government but what may be a blessing to the people if well administered. <clears throat> and I believe further that it is likely to be well administered, now watch this, for a course of years. But it will only end in despotism as other governments before it has done when the people shall become so corrupted as to need and deserve a despotic government. That's a good statement because we're living under a despotic, corrupted government today because the nation is corrupt. The people of this country are largely corrupted. Yes, God has a God-fearing, Bible-believing, blood-washed remnant. We're talking about America at large. Look at the wickedness of our time in history. And so we conclude this lesson today, beloved, with the idea that we should love our founding fathers, respect and honor them, and I need to let everybody know that our founding fathers did keep their word. They added a wonderful Bill of Rights 
to the United States Constitution in 1791. That was not very long after the Constitution had been ratified. George Washington was inaugurated as our first president, and really one of the first orders of business was to fulfill the promise of adding a Bill of Rights. And that Bill of Rights is a cherished part of the Constitution. And on January, the January 6, 21, uh, freedom protest, those over 1,000 people have been arrested and jailed because that Bill of Rights has been trashed and brought under the heel of a tyrannical government that is now in place in Washington, D.C. May God grant us all the desire to live our lives in godliness, practicing self-government, each one teaching one. And may I suggest that you find your tribe, your Israelite brethren, wherever you can find them, and you do not live in isolation. Do not live in isolation. You'll pay a big price if you do. Because we're headed into the storm of the ages. And before this storm has ended, we're going to see some very significant developments in this country. May God help us all. And by all means, dear Lord God, preserve the remnant of your people. In Christ we pray this prayer. Amen.